Thank you for being with us today, and I pray that uh, He is your reward. Um, this week, this week I've, uh, you know, just been kind of overflowing. There's weeks like that for guys like me. Um, and uh, so Dave and I talked, you know, two or three times this week, and uh, pre- I-, I preached to him, and he preached to me, uh, and uh, and just we're just just ecstatic about uh, the Word of God and about Christ and the glory of Christ that is revealed in His Word, and uh, and so we just had those times, and then Friday, uh, Jason Gilbert made the mistake of calling, and we talked for two hours. Uh, where uh, he got Friday's version of the day's sermon a little. And, uh, and so this is one of those weeks. So I'm going to say up front, there's a, there's a, there's a lot here, and, and I don't expect that you'll get everything, uh, but I think you'll hopefully, when you leave, we'll catch, just a little, we'll catch a glimpse of how powerful a passage we're looking at today. Ephesians chapter 2. For context's sake, I want to read... From 11 to 22. My specific text is verse 19 through 22, the conclusion of this great paragraph. But I, I want to um, I want to back up and read the entire passage again, because Paul's doing something very significant in this passage. And what he's doing is he's he's, he's in verses 1 through 10. He has shown to us who all of us are before we come to Christ. You remember. This is who you are. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're walking and following the course of this world. You're following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience, and you're following the flesh in its passions. You're carrying out those desires that come from your flesh, your body, your mind, and you are a child of the wrath of God. That's who you are before you come to Christ. There are no exceptions. And so then he drops down in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, out of the love with which He has loved us, giving His Son, John 3.16, is how He loved us. God's love is very specific. It's displayed to us very specifically. It's not this ushy-gushy, romantic, western, Roman idea of love. It's not Eros. He willfully loves us. And He willfully sends His Son to us. Why? If you back up into chapter 1, you'll see why. If you look at verses 3 through 4, you see it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even, here it is, as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What's being talked about in that passage is the basis for what he says in verse 4 of chapter 2. How can God, who is rich in mercy, love us? Because before He created anything, He made a covenant inside the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to redeem all the elect in Christ. That's how He can love us. So don't ever mistake, when the Bible says God is love, That's true. That's a characteristic of God. But when He expresses His love, He expresses it through His Son, Jesus Christ, and He pours it out specifically on His children, the elect, 
who He chose before the foundation of the world. That's the covenant of redemption. That is the great covenant which Spurgeon says, if you don't understand that covenant, you don't understand the Bible. You've missed it. And out of that covenant flow two things. The, the, the covenant which God had in the Garden of Eden with Adam before sin is called the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Or O. Palmer Robinson calls it the covenant of creation. How do we know there's a covenant there? Because there's no word covenant until you come later in Genesis to, 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 uh, to his actions with Abraham and, and Noah. So how do we know he had a covenant with Adam? Hosea 6, 7 says Israel disobeyed the covenant just like Adam disobeyed the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of life. The covenant of creation. The covenant of works. That's what the Westminster calls it. That's what the Shorter Catechism calls it, okay? So we're going to use their language. What does it mean, the covenant of works? Simply this, and our children know this. If children learn the catechism, it will teach you the basis of your faith. Why? What is the covenant of works? If you obey God, you will what, children? You will live, right? If you disobey the covenant, what will happen? You will die. That's right. Every covenant is made up of two things. A bilateral man and another man, and in this case, God with a man. So it's not equal, it's unequal, but it's still bilateral. God enters a covenant with man, alright? And there are blessings and cursings. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do that, I will curse you. I will cut you off. And a covenant is signed and sealed with blood. It is a blood agreement. Okay? That's the basis of a covenant. And the whole Bible is a covenant. The whole Bible is a covenant. If you don't get the covenant, you don't get the Bible. So we need to understand this. Did Adam obey the covenant of life? No. He fell, and who else children fell with him? All mankind fell with him. And the, and the, 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 the punishment from God was that he died. Spiritually. And he was cut off from fellowship with God. He was put out of the Garden of Eden. Never to be able to go there again. He lost his happiness, didn't he, children? He lost his happiness and he became sad. He became, in his very flesh, in his very heart, he became rebellious against God. That's the covenant of works, the covenant of life, covenant of creation, whatever you want to call it. That's the, that's the first thing we see under the covenant of redemption, the broad covenant God has between Himself with Himself. Covenant of works. Did any man fulfill this covenant? Yes. Who? Jesus Christ fulfilled that covenant. You are not Christ's because God graciously gave you to Christ. You are Christ's because He earned you. He bought you. He redeemed you. He did what Adam could not do in the Garden of Eden. He kept the covenant with God. He was actively obedient. He was righteous. 
And so he kept that covenant, but no other man kept it. From Adam to Christ, everyone died. And from Christ to today, every man dies physically. Physically they die. Everyone dies. That's the sign of the curse of God. Had man not sinned, he would have never died. He would have lived perpetually with God. But he sinned. And then he enters a greater relationship, greater even than perfection, and that is redeemed. Redeemed. That's a beautiful picture. You need to get that. At Genesis chapter 3, the second great covenant comes out into full display. And your seed will crush the head of the serpent. The promise of the covenant of grace is the second great covenant of the Bible. And it spans from Genesis 3 all the way through our day and into eternity. The covenant of grace. Now, the reason I give you that framework is it's so easy, if you make the mistake and you miss this big picture, the meta-narrative, as some scholars call it, the big picture of the Bible. If you get too tightly focused on any one section, one writer, one verse, one passage, you will miss this grand picture God is painting. You'll miss it. And you'll suffer because of it. You'll get so focused on the little things, you miss the big picture. God is working to save His people through the covenant of grace that was established between God and Christ. Not God and you. The covenant of grace was established between God and Christ. And it comes to those who are in Christ only by grace, through faith in the One who is the inheritor of the covenant. You don't have direct, I don't have direct relations with God the Father. I have it in Christ. So when you start monkeying around with the doctrine of who Christ is, you start changing Him in some way that's not biblical, be careful, you'll pull the rug out from under your faith. You'll have nothing to believe in. You'll have no mediator between God and man. You will hear the thundering of Sinai and you'll be consumed with the fire at the last day. Instead of being in Christ, who has a greater, more powerful word that speaks through His blood, more powerful than Abel, and it says to who? To us, come, come, come. It pleads with us to come. To Zion, not to Sinai. Come! See, you missed it, didn't you? You, look, you read the Bible, and you get so narrow, you just it, the whole thing's murky. It's just trees to you. I want you to see in the introduction this morning how beautiful the Bible is. And, and Paul assumes you know this. John assumes you know this. They work off presupposition. They speak often and we miss what they say because we are in the Bible, studying the Bible to know what it says. And so... He has dealt with us about who we were. He's dealt with us about how God saves us in that covenant of grace through Christ, in Christ, through faith. And then He said in verse 10 that you are now His workmen, created in Christ Jesus to accomplish the work He has already done beforehand, that you should walk in it. A beautiful picture, okay? Then He stops that picture and He opens a new but similar picture. He says in verses 11 through 12, 
This is who you Gentiles were before you came to Christ. Remember your condition, Gentile believers. Remember who you were. Who were they? They were the uncircumcision. They didn't have the mark of the covenant. They didn't have the mark of the covenant in their flesh. You were separate from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. I said last week, Isaiah 52 deals with this very concept talking about far and near. And Isaiah uses it in the context of those who were in exile, Jews in exile, and Jews in the promised land, Jews still dwelling in and around Jerusalem of Judea. But Paul doesn't use it that way. Paul takes that language of Isaiah and applies it directly to the Gentile Jew division. That's the second thing in the introduction I want you to see. The covenants, and secondly, in introducing our passage, I want you to see... The New Testament is the Old Testament with Greek clothes on. Write that down. The New Testament is the Old Testament with Greek clothes on. The Greek in the New Testament is not based on classical, academic, proper Greek. It is not based on that. If you go study classical Greek, lots of people make mistakes in this because they go study one of, my, one of my word study books is done by a man named Zodiates. And he is an expert, par excellent in classic Greek. And he misses the interpretation of the New Testament often. Why? Because the Bible in the New Testament is not based on classical Greek. It's based on Koine Greek. What is Koine Greek? It's a common language. And the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, listen, their thought processes are Hebrew. And they use the common language of their day, the Greek, the Koine Greek, to express Hebrew ideas. Hebraisms come out in the New Testament all the time. When you read your New Testament and it's cut away from the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, you miss a lot of the pictures that they're painting. They again assume, presuppositionally, you know the Old Covenant. You memorized it, right? It's hidden in your heart that no one should deceive you. Psalm 119. They assume you believe Psalm 119 and you have memorized the Old Testament. And so Paul feels free to just grab a line out of Isaiah 52 and put it in the text. And grab a line out of Ezekiel 37.20 and just put it in here. And just grab a line over here and pull it in there. And when his audience heard it, they heard Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 37.20. They heard it just like that. This is the old in the new. He directly quotes it sometimes. He paraphrases it. He changes it. And He does it all working off of you knowing the Old Testament. Now, you ask me, why should we study the Old Testament? Because I will say this. Like, you can't understand the Bible without the covenant framework. You can't. You cannot understand it. It is impossible. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. you got to have it. It is the background. It is the foundation. And it is being promised there... Everything promised there is fulfilled in the New Testament. But if you don't know the promise, you don't catch that it's a fulfillment. And that's what's wrong when you read this passage if you're not careful. 
You miss how grand it is. Last week, I did a poor job. Don't you like that? Somebody says, last week you sat through a poor job. I did a poor job because I was, I was feeling really bound in my heart and very trepidatious to be careful. I don't feel that way this morning. After a week of feeling miserable, I said to myself, I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach. I'm not going to worry so much about it. I'm going to preach it. This is what it says. And so now I'm going to, and now you're going to get what these guys got. Hopefully it won't be two hours. <laughs> I know. Ephesians 2. Now we've caught up with him. He's in 11. He's in 13. He's moving. Then in 13 through 18, he says, everything that is done in this church is being done through the cross of Christ. Everything that's in the Old Testament is brought into the New through the cross. Through the life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That becomes the prism by which they look back to the Old Testament to understand it. And so that, that, that's at play here. And then verse 19 through 20, which we'll talk about today. So let's read the text. Let's read it together. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision or the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or the kingdom or the nation of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? By the cross, by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What was the dividing wall of hostility? There was a physical wall at the temple. That's one level. But the deeper spiritual division happened because of the Mosaic ceremonial law. Food you could eat, food you couldn't eat. Places you should go, places you can't go. Clothes you can wear, clothes you can't wear. Hair styles you must keep. Beards you must wear. That separated Israel from all of the Gentile nations around them. The reason there is still a Jewish nation today, a lineage of Jewish people on the earth, is because God established a code which they followed. They traced their lineage. They traced their lineage. Amy and I watched Schindler's List last night first half and what becomes apparent is the reason the German army is able to round up and put them in ghettos is because the Orthodox Jews kept themselves separate from the Gentiles and because of that separateness they were easily identified if if I come to your house most of you do not have your lineage all the way back to where it came from but these people did they knew everyone in their family All the way back, generation after generation, hundreds and thousands of years. And they kept that because of the ceremonial covenant, the ceremonial part of the covenant of Moses. Paul says that is gone now. The ceremonial things are gone. Look what he says. 
By, he did this in his flesh by tearing down the wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's being very careful. The moral law of God is not uprooted, but the ordinances are gone. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. He made a third humanity, Christ did. Not Jew, not Gentile, but slave of Christ. That became their identity. And he made peace. And might, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. Jews and Gentiles are still hostile, but this third humanity is not hostile. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, it is identified by Christ, and it is bound by love. The love community. That's, that's what we see here. And so, he says, He came and preached peace to you. That is exactly Isaiah's way of talking. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Christ in me makes it impossible for me to stay angry and violent against you, no matter who you are. We are at peace because He is our peace. So then, this is our text for today. So then, you are no longer Gentiles, strangers and aliens. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Three things I want you to see today from this, spot, from this passage. First, we are members of the kingdom of God in Christ. We are members of the kingdom of Christ. God in Christ. Secondly, that's in, that, that's in verse 19. Secondly, we are members of the household, the family. We are members of the family of God in Christ. And this is particularly impactful for Gentiles. The Jewish believers would have assumed they were part of the kingdom. They would have assumed they're part of the household. They would have assumed there was a temple. Paul says to the Gentiles, you are in the kingdom of God. You are in the family of God. And then he says something very significant about the temple. First of all, we, us, here, 21st century, are part of the kingdom of God in Christ. Secondly, we here at Grace Fellowship, believers in Christ, that part of that universal church, are members of the family of God in Christ we, third point, verses 20 through 22, we, the church, is the temple of the living God in Christ. Now, I have, I have a, a lot to uh, prove it, right? As I know some, some are saying, prove it, prove it, okay, I'll try. Verse 19, You're, you are a citizen of the kingdom. And how do we know? The word kingdom is not here. But look at the phrases that are used. 
You are no longer strangers and aliens. Strangers were those who lived among the people, but were not Jewish. They, they, were, they were strangers. And aliens were those living around them and, in, and even passing through who were not Jewish. They were Gentile. This is the classic way the Jews marked off the Gentiles. They're strangers to the covenant. Even if they live in my house. Even if they're my slave, which was allowed by the Old Testament law. A Gentile could be a slave to a Jewish family. And if he was, he still was a stranger to the covenant. Even if he lived in the house, he was still a stranger. Even if he took on the Jewish way of living, even if he wore their clothes, didn't cut his beard, ate their food, he was still a stranger. He was not officially a part of the covenant. Not then. And Paul says, you Gentiles who were strangers are no longer strangers, and you're no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens. There's the kingdom idea. Fellow citizens of what? Of the kingdom. Fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a huge undertaking in the Old Testament that is expressed most particularly in the nation of Israel, in the ethnic descendants of Abraham. It was marked out by God. And He said, You shall be a kingdom and a kingdom of royal priests to Me. He assembled them in the assembly around Mount Sinai. And He called them His people. And I will be your God. And He gave them the law. Okay? That's the Old Covenant. And now Paul says... In this era, looking back through the cross, you Gentiles are now part of that. You're now part of the assembly. You're now a member of the people of God. You're in the kingdom. You're citizens of a kingdom. God's kingdom. And you're with the saints. Members of the household of God. Our second point. Household of God. This is the common way this term here is used of all the household. Both the physical building, the land it was built on, and the people who lived in it. You're now a part of this household. As Gentiles even. Okay? And God has brought you into this family in Christ. How do we know this? Well, Paul expounds this idea in Romans 8. If you hold your places in Ephesians, he makes it very specific in Romans chapter 8. He's very clear here. <clears throat> Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's a revolutionary way to talk. To call people the sons of God was revolutionary. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons in whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with who? Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. So, you're citizens of the kingdom of God. You're part of the assembly. You've joined the people. And you're now a member of the family of God. You're a son of God. Through who? Christ. And now you're joint heir with Him. Joint heir with Him there. And then we look in 19 and we see your fellow citizens with the saints. Members of the 
family of God. Subpoint here is that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, there's some debate here, and I'm not going to get into the depths of it, but linguistically we believe that what he's saying here is not that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets, but rather we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, New Testament prophets. Those who are gifted as prophets among you. They particularly, these prophets, took the word of God with the apostles to the Gentiles. How do I get that? Where, how would I write? Because I bet when you read it, you automatically thought the prophets of the Old Testament. But look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> he says, talking about the unity we have in Christ. Paul says in verse 11, And he gave to the church apostles... The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. You notice in that list that those are all New Testament, in New Covenant in their idea. The apostles are New Covenant. We wouldn't even debate that. The, the shepherds or pastors and teachers are New Covenant. We wouldn't debate that or argue about that. The evangelists, New Covenant. Why then when we take that word prophet and put it back into the Old Covenant? We wouldn't. And He wouldn't. Paul's talking about the office of the active in their day. The apostles who came to you and their pro the prophets who came to you, Gentiles, are the foundation that you're built on. They're delivering to you the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That's what the apostles and prophets did in Paul's day. They built the foundation. If you look back at 1 Corinthians, just to, uh, go ahead and start bridging the gap between this being on a foundation. A family built on a foundation sounds awful strange, doesn't it? What in the world? But not if you see his next metaphor is a temple. His next statement is about the temple. And if you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 3... He uses the idea here, talking about the church, don't be divided, don't be of Paul, or of Peter, or of Apollos, or of Christ. That's divisive, that's, that's separating the people. But what does he say in, uh, in verse 10? According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, he's an apostle, remember, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, Christ is the foundation. Or is the apostle and prophets the foundation, Paul? It's one and the same. Because the apostles and prophets are building the foundation on the confession. If you noticed in the 1689, we said it. The universal church is made up of who? All who profess faith in Christ. The gospel is the foundation. The good news is the foundation of the church. The good news of Christ is the foundation of the church. Where would Paul get an idea like that? From Jesus, Matthew chapter 16. Peter, who do you say that I am? And we, I say, we say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I tell you, on this rock, I will build my church. What rock? The rock of Peter's confession. On this confession, on a confession like this, I will build my new covenant people. 
who are a member of the kingdom and who are in the family of God. I'm building you on that confession of faith in me. Who, who is the rock? You see, even in Matthew 16, the words go back and forth, don't they? What is the rock that he's building the church on? We could rightly say he's building it on, on the confession of faith in Christ. We could also rightly say he's building it on Christ himself. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. I'm building a foundation. And what am I building? I'm building the foundation which no one else can lay a foundation because the foundation is laid in Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 2 he says, you're being built as the family of God on this foundation that's made up of the apostles and prophets. Why the apostles and prophets? Because they are delivering the gospel, the good news, whereby you will confess faith in Christ. The church is built on confession. Some of you have asked me, why do y'all do confession? Why do y'all go? Because the church is built on confession. The church is built in on, I believe. If you don't say, I believe, you're not in the church. And so he says here, you are being built into the kingdom of God. You're accepted in Christ. You're being built into the family of God because you're accepted in Christ. And that's being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those who bear the gospel of good news once and for all delivered to the saints. And then he goes into the deepest and most beautiful metaphor of what the church is. The most beautiful picture in all the Bible of who the church is. And I want to spend the rest of our time there. Ephesians 2, 20-22, Paul says, We, the church, are the temple of God. Every covenant has a sign. Every covenant has a sign. The covenant that was given to Abraham had a sign, and that sign was circumcision. The covenant that was given to Moses carried that sign of circumcision. And added to that, were the ordinances and the, the ceremonial uh, trappings of the nation of Israel. That's the sign of the covenant of Moses. Circumcision plus the ordinances which were carried out by the people of God. The covenant which God made with David in 2 Samuel 7 does not seem on surface look to have a sign. But I would contend it does have a sign. It has an outward physical sign which was expressed for over a thousand years in a throne and in a temple. Remember, and I just jot down 2 Samuel 7. I want you to read it sometime. David, sitting in his palace made with cedar, looks out the window and sees the tabernacle. The people have been settled in the land now. They've been at civil war Remember, David and, and Saul's forces have been fighting. And Abner, the great general of Saul, has come to David with a peace treaty, with a peace covenant. I will bring my men and we will serve you as king. That was a revolutionary moment for David. David's life had been oppressive. You think your life is hard? You've never been hunted like a dog, I bet you. He was at knife point his whole life. He thought, being there in Hebron... He would be stuck being the king of half a nation. Nobody wants to be the king of half a nation. But Abner comes to him. And Abner, in the cover of night, says, 
I'll make a treaty with you. Saul's dead and you are the king of Israel. And I'll bring all my forces and we'll bow down to you. He's, he's talking about unifying the nation. David's heart must have leapt for joy. Abner leaves that meeting and Joab, the general, the head general for David, murders him. The trepidation in David's heart must have just been overwhelming. Why? Because the whole nation was going to assume what? Hear good Abner, a righteous man, a descendant and follower of our people, the servant of Saul, came to make peace, and David killed him. David can sense that this is going to be ugly. And he's sitting there in his house in Hebron. He does something strategic, though. Instead of waiting, he moves up to Jerusalem and he establishes the city of David as his throne. He says, its central location will give me strategic place in the people of Israel. If we're going to have to keep fighting a civil war, I want to be on the mountain in the center. I want to have the high point. That's basically what he's saying. And it's in that setting that he looks out and sees God's tabernacle, a tent. And he's in a house built with cedar. That repulses David. And David says to Nathan the prophet, Why should I live in a house built from cedar and God lives in a raggedy tent? I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, without consulting God, he sees the goodness in David's heart, the heart after God's own heart. And he says, do all that you wish to do. The Lord is with you. And he goes home. And that very night, God speaks to Nathan and He says, paraphrased, Weathers translation, You spoke out of turn, son. It's not that I want David to build me a house. Have I ever asked any of the judges to build me a house? I'm the God of heaven and earth. No house can contain me. I've lived in a tent. Why? Because I was with my people. God's presence was mobile. It moved with the people of God. It was not to be built out of stone and mortar. It was a mobile temple. It was a tabernacle. And that's what's represented me. And you go tell David he can't build me a house. But because I love David, I want to make an agreement with him. And so, when Nathan goes, he says, Thus says the Lord. And it's one of the most beautiful passages of all the Scripture. He says, David, you can't build me a house, but your descendant, your offspring will build me a house. And your offspring will sit on the throne forever and ever. In the Near East, that is a bold promise from God. There are no kings lasting over 200 years in that day. And now God says your descendant is going to live forever on the throne. It's a powerful statement. And we see Solomon build a temple, and we see Solomon ascend a throne, and the enemies of God were made to be at peace with the nation, and it expanded beyond its previous territory, and it's a great day of prosperity. It reached a zenith of power in all the world. There has never, write this down, ever been a throne in the Near East like Solomon's, like David's. It lasted over 400 years. Not even the great Pharaoh's dynastic uh, uh, families of Egypt could claim that. God gave him a throne and it was established firmly. And so I say the throne is a covenant sign to him. And the temple. 
which your offspring will build. And, and Solomon built a building. He built a temple. And so we think, well, that's the end of the story. No, no. Oh, no. That's the outward sign of an inward reality, a spiritual reality, which God would bring to full bear in His Son, the great offspring of David. This is why you need to know the Old Testament. This is why you need to understand covenants. Listen to me. The fulfillment of the temple of God is the church of Jesus Christ. God has turned our eyes from the physical to the home in heaven, to the spiritual temple, which we will live in forever with our God. Now, hit the burden of proof. Here it is. If you look, he's very specific. He says, this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the gospel, the confession of the gospel, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. That term, though it's debated, means the, the, the place where we draw the lines to build the building. He is the measuring post. He is, if we're building a temple, He is the most crucial part of that building. He is the one which we build ourselves off of in the ancient world. They would have built themselves off the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And so then He says, Jesus Christ Himself, in whom the whole structure is joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Now, how do we know this is the fulfillment of one, Ezekiel 37.20, which is a promise that God will dwell with His people, and, and 2 Samuel 7. Turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, Jesus having made the water into wine at Cana, goes from there to the temple. And they're having the Passover. And Jesus tells them, Do not make my house, the house of my Father, into a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That is a quote, again, of the Old Testament. Psalm 69.9 Zeal for your house has consumed me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered him, Destroy this temple, pointing at the building. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They laugh at him. The ruins of Solomon's temple are contained in the temple which they now have been working on 46 years. And Jesus points at parts of that building being a thousand years old. He points at it and he says, you've labored all these years to build this building and I'm going to tear it down. And in three days I'm going to raise up a temple. And it's very plain in the original that he's not talking about a building anymore. He's talking about his body. Jesus is the temple. David, you can't build me a house, but your offspring will build me a house. And that offspring will sit on the throne of you, your, of his father, forever. Who is the offspring? Near to David, it is Solomon, but it is fulfilled in Christ. The great temple God promised in 2 Samuel 7 and 8 
was not a building. The great temple was the church. We are that temple. Oh, wow. Now, we're in the soup. We need a clear passage if that's the case. We have one. We read it this morning. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 6. We're drawing this to a close and then make some application. Steve read to you a passage which you may know very clearly, and I've heard it preached my whole life, and the focus is always on marriage. Don't marry unbelievers, and I think there's truth in that. But he has a much broader purpose. 2 Corinthians, we don't have time to get into all of it. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, opens up a thought for Paul that he closes in 7, chapter 1. I mean, chapter 7, verse 1. One thought, and that is the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And in Him we say, yes, yes. That thought opens up for Paul an entire seven chapters. You thought Paul was thinking long in that 13 sentence. He thinks on chapters. He carries one sustained thought and he's bringing it to a close in chapter 6. And he says in verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you, church, you are the temple of God. As God says. And then he goes into two different passages. He goes into Isaiah and and Leviticus. He goes into Isaiah 52.11. He goes into Leviticus 26, verse 12. And as G.K. Bill and D.A. Carson have so stealthily showed us, he's speaking about Ezekiel 37.20, and they would have seen it off the front. Why? Because he says this, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is an exact wordage from the Greek Old Testament of Ezekiel 37.20. The great messianic promise of a temple that's coming is fulfilled, Paul says, and it's fulfilled in the church. And I think he's very intentional in picking that language because the people of his day were focused on a physical building like they were focused on a physical circumcision, like they were focused on a throne in Jerusalem, and Jesus and Paul obliterate their physicalness and tell them, my kingdom is not of this world, it's otherworldly. That is a powerful statement. And he says the church is the fulfillment. You are the temple of the living God. Not you are like it, you are it. You are it. If Paul wanted to say you are like it, he could have said you're like it. But he didn't. He said it plainly. You are that temple which I told you about in the Old Covenant. And so, His dwelling place is with us. And we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because of the offspring of David. Because of the offspring of David. John chapter 1. John the Apostle says very plainly who Jesus is. He is the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and He dwelt. What's the word, Hebrew word behind that? It means pitched His tent. 
He tabernacled. David looked out his throne room window and said, that tent is repulsive to me. We need to build a grand building. And God said, I have a tent. And I don't need your building. And the writer of Hebrews says, that tent is in heaven, not made with hands. And Jesus says, I'm the tent. Church, we have Christ. What else do we need? His promises are yes and amen. They're fulfilled in Christ. Oh, He chooses His words carefully when He says this tent is pitched in Jesus Christ who is the temple that will be torn down and raised up in three days. And then Paul says, You are the temple of the living God. And in our passage He says, Your foundation is laid in the gospel, the confession of Christ and You are being built up in Him into a living temple. Little stones being built together. So application quickly. What fellowship have you with those who are not believers? And why don't you have better fellowship with your members? When you take your your temple, your body... Your individual little stone and you join it to an unbeliever in marriage, in, in business, in, in whatever, and you strike an agreement and love with them, a bond close with them, you're joining God's temple to the unholy temple of Baal. So how are we supposed to be reaching the world then? We're being built up into this magnificent temple that will draw all nations to itself. We are to be distinct among the people. Not by our clothes, not by our food, not by our land, not by a temple building, but because we are in Christ, we are to be sufficiently different. When they see you coming, they ought to think, oh, there comes that slave of Jesus again. He's going to talk about all these things. He's going to live this righteous life. They should see you and see the temple of God. They should see you, church, Grace Fellowship, and see Him. And see Him as the temple glittered like gold and shone that all men might come to Jerusalem and worship. So Jesus said, you are a city set on a hill and its light cannot be hidden. Is your light hidden? That's the question I'm asking. That's the question I'm asking. Listen, you can't have the world in Jesus. You can't be part stone Belial and part living stone. You can't. You'll either be His, and He'll build you on the rock, the foundation place, Jesus. He'll build you into a great temple, or you are cast away. You're worthless to the project. Lost man or woman, this is the greatest endeavor of all the world. Because our God is making the kingdoms of this world into His kingdom. He is building us up through Him, through the Spirit, into the great temple of God. Don't you want to be a part of this temple? I mean, it's something burning in you saying, that's it, I want it. I hope it is. The response is, save me. The response is, make me yours. Claim me. That's the response. And so, as we close this great chapter, this great text, we leave with the fact that God's dwelling place is with us. Last application. If the Holy Spirit be in you, if the Holy Spirit be in you, we've already said if the Holy Spirit is in you, therefore you're in the temple of God, 
Why would you sin? That's his motivation in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, the close of that bracket that started in 2 Corinthians 1.20 closes with these words. Therefore, having these promises fulfilled, why are you sinning? The, the charge for a holy life comes from the fact that you're part of the temple of the living God. Therefore, you ought to in character act like Him. Don't sin. Why? Because you want to be righteous? No, because I am righteous in Christ. And so I have no desire to sin. You want to be self-righteous, don't you? You don't want to drink with us. You don't want to party with us because you think you're better than us. No, that's not it. I'm just like you. But Christ is in me. And so I don't want those things. I want Him. Oh, yeah. I know. Tell us. You're not going to look at that good-looking woman, are you? You think you're better than that. No, I know I'm not better than that. But He has saved me. He has saved me and He has placed me as a holy temple into the larger temple. And I don't want those things. That's the motivation we need to be thundering or preaching is that motivation. Not self-righteousness. Not be better than everybody else. No. He's better than everybody else. Second application. I promised there would be one. Second application is this. Being the temple of the living God. Being the temple of the living God. Are we displaying His glory at Grace Fellowship? Are we? Are we such a knitted group of people with ourselves and with our fellow Christians in this community that we are displaying His glory? Are we? There's no long range of Christians. You've heard that your whole life. The reason is is because a brick is not a temple. A brick belongs in a temple. So next time your buddy tells you, I don't have to go to church, I got Jesus. No, you need to be at church. Because out there, you're a stone. But in here, you're a temple. And God's presence is with you. I lied. Third application. <laughs> I can't leave it. You have the Spirit of God. His presence is with you. And so the presence within you is greater than the one in the world. Christian, are you afraid today? Those storms last night, my children were afraid. And I was so glad to say to them, not, the tornado's not going to blow our house down, I promise. It might. But at the bottom of the steps, Noah in my arms at 11.30, he's sitting here saying, I can't sleep, Daddy. I can't sleep. And I said, Son, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may He make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. He's with us. The ironic blessing is taking place in the church every day. He's with us. His face is shining on us. So what are we afraid of? I can't go to Constantine. There's a lot of thugs down there. What are you afraid of? Go labor for them. That they might see the glory of God and say, why are you doing this? They asked it yesterday over and over and over again. Why are you people doing this? Your kids don't go to school here. You don't live here. Because Jesus, that's why we're doing it. Because Jesus, because of Jesus. That preaches the gospel in ways you can't do it by being a separatist. Go join the people of God. God's throne is mobile. His temple is mobile. It's us. 
He's ruling and reigning through the church. So go overcome the world. Because I've overcome it. And I'm the temple and you're the temple being built into me. Oh, now the Bible's making sense to me. God's talking to me in covenant language. He says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He said, you won't be an orphan in this world. I'm coming to get you. That's all about this temple. That's all about the presence of God being with us. So, next time you're afraid, tell yourself, when I'm afraid, I will trust in God. That's what the psalmist said. And who is this God? He's not far away. He's near to me in Christ. Oh, the precious promises of God are yes and fulfilled. Amen in Him. In Him, so do not be afraid. Your loved one dies, you don't overlook it. You cry and weep, and then you look at that friend and say, when they say, how are you making it? You don't say, well, I'm a pretty strong person. You say, Jesus, He's the only reason I have hope today. It's because of Him. When your business fails, all the material things around you are fleeting and passing and dying, and you experience in your life, and your buddy comes over and says, how are you going to survive? I don't know. I don't have a plan. I don't know where I'm going physically. But I know this. I have a home in heaven. And it cannot be shaken. I'm part of a temple. And the temple's root is in the Holy of Holies of heaven. Therefore, let the world mock. Let it, let it shake. Because the unshakable things are coming to the surface in my life. Listen. The power of living is being in this temple. In the presence of God. Oh, it is a mobile it is a moving, it is an ever-expanding temple. So much so, gosh, I hate not closing. So much so, I'm sorry, I'm going to land the plane, I promise. So much so, that in Revelation 21, John is caught up in a vision, he stands on a mountain, and he sees coming from heaven the new heavens and the new earth, which is a city, which is... A temple because there's no temple in it because God is dwelling with His people. The church is what He sees coming down in new form, in all its radiant glory. What will exist in forever? The church with God in worship in a new heaven and a new earth. So much so that the glory of God will encapsulate the whole new earth and it will shine with His glory. And it'll be a glorious existence. That's what we're headed to. So when this world fails you, just remember you're a pilgrim going to that world. That you're going to that world. And He's taking you.